Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out this evening as we begin our new series in the book of Hebrews. And this is a series that, as I've shared with you, has been kind of a long time coming. We've been prepping for Hebrews for quite a while, or at least I have been prepping for Hebrews for quite a while. And I'm still a little undecided how we're going to completely handle all of the back and forth. As Andrew said just a moment ago, there is a great necessity of keeping a finger in the Old Testament as we study this great book. And so tonight, we're going to primarily be in Hebrews in the New Testament, but as we get into the future days, we will probably be bouncing back and forth, and we may even spend a little bit of a hiatus out in the book of Leviticus at least. I originally had intended for these two to go together, maybe have one in the morning, one in the evening, and then build off of one another. I also... As I'm planning for potentially doing that, I also don't want to be a distraction from one book or the other. Both deserve their own time, and so I've wrestled with that back and forth, but tonight we will begin in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of those epistles where you can easily be tangled in the weeds. Have you ever gotten to that point where you've been reading through the book of Hebrews, you're like, I am buried up to my nose in all of the stuff here that I do not understand. Uh, I see a lot of nods out there that you have been in that position in the book of Hebrews. And so it is necessary for us to have some understanding of the Old Testament. And so we will be uh, filling in some of those details, but we return here often. It's, it's also interesting to me that while we get buried in it, we relish in it as well. We spend time in chapters like chapter 11, and we just drink the refreshing spring of chapter 11, praising God for the testimony of the saints who have gone on before us. And so it's a book that has challenged the Christian heart and mind, especially the Gentile Christian heart and mind, uh, since it was recognized as canonical, and even before that, since pen touched parchment and it was part of the canon. But we recognize that because of some of the difficulties, such as who is the author, which is a question I'll be asking you tonight, uh, who is the author, those questions would delay its recognition as being part of the canon for some time. It's one of the last books. This one, Jude, and one or two others were some of the last books. James were some of the last books to be recognized as canonical, as part of the scriptures. But indeed, we know that they are, and we praise the Lord for that, even though we are not sure who the author is. And so we're going to dig in, and we're going to, hopefully, by the time we're done with the book of Hebrews, and a shorter amount of time than we probably maybe need to take, we'll see as we go, but we're going to hopefully see all of the chapters as that refreshing spring. I don't want us to get into the weeds and say, wow, we got in there so deep, we're never coming out, uh, we, need to, we need to chop our way out some way. I want us to get all the way through to understand the book to understand its layout, and that's why we're going to spend tonight an introduction. So tonight, as we look into the book of Hebrews, we really have some simplistic outlines for us. The book is not that super complex as far as the way that it is laid out, and so it'll help us to begin to navigate through some of those difficult challenges that we find as believers. For, he, for the Hebrew believer, for those who come from a Jewish background and have received Christ, this is a book of great comfort and encouragement. And it was to the original audience as well. 
For the believer today, we find the same comfort and encouragement as we continue to find in every detail that the book speaks to that Christ is superior. That is the key point for us tonight. Christ is superior. That's why we want to spend time in this book. We should be challenged, we should be driven to the holiness and awe of who God is, and we want to be drawn there in the recognition of the importance of the superiority of Christ in every way. That was true for the Hebrew Christians at the time of the writing, and it is certainly true today. There are none who are equal to Christ. There are none who stand as his counselors. There are none who stand as his equal on the battlefield, and there are none who stand alongside Christ at all. That's a bold statement in a world that's trying to be all-inclusive. We want, we want all of these other world religions to come to the same level of, of importance or significance, but that is simply not the case. The book of Hebrews stands as different, distinct, and superior as we see Christ. And so that is where we're going to dig in tonight and in the weeks to come. And in order to do that, obviously, we're going to need the Lord's strength and his wisdom. And so let us ask for the Lord's blessing as we begin tonight. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the book as it lays out before us tonight. This is a book that has fascinated the minds of believers for literally 2,000 years. And it is a book that, upon its pinning, had captured the imagination of even the early church, with even many of the early church not sure exactly how to handle the truths that are spoken of herein. Lord, so we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment, that you would give us understanding hearts of both Leviticus and the rest of the Old Testament to which Hebrews speaks, but that we would also be encouraged to grow in the truth that today Christ is superior to all. Lord, I praise you that we have a book like Hebrews in the canon of Scripture that would challenge the closest, perhaps, that being Judaism to biblical Christianity, and yet, in every way, Christ is superior. Lord, I praise you because, as we will see by the time we wind down here this evening, that not only does this bring great comfort and encouragement, but it allows us to draw near to your presence, that we would recognize the great joy that we have as believers that the sacrificial system is completed, is over, that because of the blood of Christ, the curtain, the veil of the flesh that had kept us from entering into the presence of an almighty, holy God has been removed. And now we are able to, through Christ's ministry and mediation for us, enter into the very throne room, that we enjoy the presence of our God, and we worship you there collectively. Lord, these are great truths that were beyond the comprehension of the Hebrew Christians at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, but I pray that we would relish in them, take great joy in them, and exalt you together tonight, that these would truly be that which would transform and change and renew your people for your glory, and for our good. Lord, we ask that every word that is spoken tonight would be that which challenges our heart to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, and that we'd become more and more like Christ because of the time we spend here tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight we do. We dig into 
the introduction to the book. So we're going to kind of bounce around the book of Hebrews a little bit. We're going to see some general themes. We're going to ask some important questions. And so the first question, and this requires your participation, who's the author? That's a softball question, isn't it? It's an easy question. (laughs) Not really. Uh, Who's the author? Any ideas? The Lord. Thank you. Move on. Next question. Some Jewish guy. Probably some Jewish guy. Correct. Maybe Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the top contenders in my estimation for the writing of the book of Hebrews. Is it Paul? I've already kind of warned you on this, several of you, so probably, most likely not Paul. Although the early church, many of them in the early church believed that it was Paul. Some of them would say Clements or others were the writers. We're going to get into this a little bit tonight, and we begin to understand already with these first question, with this first question that there's a lot about the book of Hebrews that is simply a mystery to us. And the author is not declared in the book. There are some points in which we're going to highlight. We're going to start in chapter 2 in a few moments. There are some points in which we see the little tidbits of information regarding authorship, but we're not given the real information. The Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writes to you Hebrews. We don't see that. It's not here. The book of Hebrews is among the biggest sources of debates among Christians today. If you were to talk to somebody really and you're sitting down in Bible study and you brought up the book of Hebrews, everybody has engaged in some sort of discussion or debate about the book of Hebrews. Who is its author? Who was its original audience? Why was it written? All of these are important questions that the book does only partially answer. And that's where we're going to find ourselves tonight. Its authorship is among one of the top debated subjects. When you think of the book of Hebrews as being a debated subject, its top question is, who wrote it? There's great division, or there has been, and there continues to be in the church. There's great division over the authorship, going all the way back to the early church. And as I said, some in the early church believed Paul. Some said Barnabas, or maybe Luke, or even Clement. So there was never any recognition of a an author that had overwhelming support even from the earliest of church fathers about this letter in fact as i shared a few moments ago even its canonicity was questioned because of its authorship who was the one who wrote the book of hebrews because part of canonicity or the recognition of canonicity of scripture is that it had to have been an apostle or at least overseen by the ministry of an apostle And we're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, although I think we can almost prove that it was under the at least close auspices of an apostle. So we don't know that for sure, but we do know that the early church did indeed recognize it as canonical because it is a canonical book. Canon being the 66 books of Scripture that you hold in your hands today that the early church recognized as being written of the Holy Spirit, as holy men of old were moved by the Spirit of God to write. Canonicity was not something that we ascribe to a book. It is something that we recognize in a book. We've studied this. If you've been in my Sunday school classes, we've studied this on the issue of canonicity. 
the church does not give any scripture the right and the authority of being scripture. Canonicity means that God is the one who, when the Spirit of God moved holy men of old, authorized the canon. Scripture is authoritative because God made it so. And the book of Hebrews fits that category. And so does the other, so do the other books of the New Testament that were highly debated, such as James and Jude, among some of those that were the last to be recognized as canonical books. As soon as the author, whoever he was, touched the quill into the ink, and the ink then with the, on the quill pen touching the parchment, as soon as that happened, this book was authoritative as the written word of God, the inspired word of God. And so therefore we study it as such. Many throughout the church have debated its authorship, and there's not an ex- enough external information to say, yes, the early church leaned this way, so we're all going to lean this way. If there was any leaning in the early church, it is not known, because certain of the early church fathers would go one way, some would go another, and others would go yet another. Internally, however, there are portions of the letter that would seem as if Paul wrote them. If you've read through the book of Rome, uh, Hebrews rather from cover to cover, and you've read the book of Romans from cover to cover, you'll see a lot of similarities. You'll see a lot of passages that do seem similar as if Paul may have written them. But then you can encounter other passages in the book of Hebrews where you say, that is not Pauline at all. That doesn't look like Paul would have written that. The style is different. The original language is different. And Greek, the way that certain statements are made is different than if Paul had written it. Paul commonly, one of the significant differences, Paul commonly used both Greek and Hebrew texts when citing the Old Testament. But the author of Hebrews used solely the Septuagint. Only the Septuagint is used in quoting the Old Testament, which is significant. That is a deviation from the way that the Apostle Paul would write, having used the Septuagint and other Greek texts for the Old Testament as well as using Hebrew, this author doesn't do that same activity, that same behavior. But notice Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. I think this is their strongest clue that it is not Paul. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, and listen closely. The scripture says this, actually let's back up to verse 1. It says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here, now listen closely. It is declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. It was attested to us by those who heard. The author of Hebrews positions himself not as an eyewitness, nor as an apostle, nor as one who was the first to hear, but as the second to hear. Paul made many claims about being an eyewitness. He made many claims about being one who had heard. He made many claims about being an apostle, And the writer of Hebrews has taken a significant statement that would not have been made by Paul and applied it to his own testimony. 
So the writer of Hebrews is applying something that Paul does not ascribe for himself. The writer of Hebrews applies to themselves. These differences and similarities are not to be totally surprising to you and I. If it was not Paul who wrote the book, but Paul who had some oversight of the book, would you not expect some Pauline flavor? I remember, and I've shared this illustration many times before in different circumstances, but I remember one time that uh, one of my boys was standing with me. We were talking to people in the foyer of the church where I was serving at the time, and they were just real little. And uh, we were standing there talking, and pretty soon I noticed that they were kind of angling, this, the sun was kind of angling the same way I was standing. You know, I typically kind of lean to one side. They were kind of angling that way. They had their arms crossed like this, and they were acting like they were talking to somebody in front of them. And then they looked up to see how I was standing, and they tried to mimic that. Isn't that what you would kind of expect when one is trying to mimic another? So I want to be as close as I can to the first one because I'm mimicking them. Well, we do that as adults as well. We do that as we grow in Christ. Whoever's led us in our Christian journey and we've matured through their ministry and we become more and more like them, we begin to sound like them. We begin to walk like them. We begin to talk like them. And we would begin to write like them. So it should not come as a surprise when we find some Pauline-esque things in the book of Hebrews because Paul most likely had influence over the writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever it was. But it would not have been Paul. And so we also see some of the differences. We don't see Paul throughout every element of the letter. We see something other than Paul in certain places. And so we should expect that whoever this was, was not following exactly everything that Paul dictated. It wasn't Pauline, but it was Pauline influenced because they were probably mentored by the Apostle Paul. So we don't know. That's, where, that's as much information as we can glean. We don't know who this was. Was it a co-worker with Paul? Was it Barnabas who had spent so much time with Paul? Likely, and that is why I lean towards Barnabas as being the author of the book of Hebrews. But if you were to say, I believe it to be Alexander, or I believe it to be Luke, or I believe it to be Timothy, I would say probably not Timothy because of its Jewish nature. But we don't have any evidence of any of that. It could have been any of those individuals. So let us not get hung up so much on the author as recognizing we do see some trends here of apostle authority, as this one seems to be writing under the influence or under the mentorship of the Apostle Paul. With that, we're then able to capture some pieces that we would not be able to capture. We're not so enamored with the writer as we are enamored with what he wrote. And so that, to that end, we recognize that the authorship is unknown, probably, most likely, is not Paul, probably, most likely, is not, as some believe, some third century Christian. Uh, much later, I think that we will answer that question in just a moment, but we recognize that this was somebody with some influence, that Paul had some influence over. So who received the letter? This is a key question, and it goes right along with this question is uh, who's the author, and it's, it's right tucked up underneath that point. 
is we want to know the author. We also want to know the recipient. Who's the recipient of the letter? While it is not the most debated issue in the book as to who the recipient is, it may be the most important for the sake of understanding. Because as we ventured into just a few moments ago, you and I as primarily Gentile Christians, we start to wander into the depths of the book of Hebrews and we get up to here real quick. We start to drown real fast because we don't have the Jewish background. And so understanding that it would be a Jewish background that would have been the original recipients is very helpful. That's why we keep a finger back in the Old Testament so that we can indeed read through some of the texts, especially those of the Pentateuch, and begin to understand the reason that the writer addresses certain issues that he addresses. We're going to get to those in just a moment, uh, three of those, three key ones that the author addresses. But it helps our understanding. These are important matters when we understand that the letter draws from three distinct time periods. So these are important, and I want to take just a moment and work our way through them. We're going to see them highlighted Then we're going to see some three pillars later on, but these are three distinct time periods, three distinct dispensations that the book of Hebrews works through, that it navigates through. This is why it's a bit disjointed for us, because the first is we have the comparison of Christ to Melchizedek. In this comparison of Christ to Melchizedek, we're going all the way back to the age pre-law, pre the giving of the law. We're going back to the time of Abraham, and Christ is being compared with a high priest, or with a priest who is of the higher order than the Levitical priesthood, which will come in a later dispensation. So the writer of Hebrews is taking us all the way back before the law, before even the formation of Israel. And so we go to that dispensation, and we begin to understand and wrestle with the themes of a priestly line called Melchizedek. And we compare Christ with Melchizedek. That's one dispensation that the writer of Hebrews is going to take us back to. The second is this role of priest, uh, specifically of the high priest of the Most High God during the time of uh, the Levitical priesthood under the law. So we're going to compare the Melchizedek priesthood with the Levitical priesthood. So now we have two dispensations that the author is writing about. Well, that can add to some confusion if we don't understand those time periods. And then we also, the third period is the age of the Messiah and his eternal priesthood, which is being enjoyed right now in the present age, in the age of grace. So the writer of Hebrews goes from all the way back to Abraham through to the time of the law into the time that we now live in, in the age of grace. That's three of the dispensations. That's challenging for a Gentile mind because he's writing specifically to believers of this age who are Hebrews, who are Jewish, and who are struggling with Judaism and perhaps even Judaizers. So we understand that the audience is going to have to move through the superiority of Christ in order for them to glean the richness of the age of grace that we live in. But you and I, who were those who did not come from that Jewish background, who started in the age of grace already, we start there, and it's difficult for us to go back. 
But it is valuable for us because we need to be those who recognize the superiority of Christ over all systems that have come before it or will be attempted to come after Christ. There's great joy in knowing that Christ is superior in every way. In fact, we're going to be drawing near with a clear conscience by the end of the book, in the second half of the book of Hebrews, because of that great truth. So the writer of Hebrews is helping us move through The letter would seem, given all of that information, the letter would seem to be written to those in the church who were both saved already and those who do not yet know the Lord as Savior but are of Jewish descent or Jewish origin. It would seem that at least some, if not most of the audience, did not know the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, especially concerning the priesthood. So there's confusion, there's immaturity in the church, specifically of Jewish background, And in that Jewish background, they're getting the old and new covenants confused. And you say, well, how could they do that? How could they possibly miss that? Well, it's fascinating to me that we still do it in the church. We still do not understand the differences between the old and the new covenants. We simply do not understand sometimes the differences between Israel and the church. And so the writer of Hebrews is drawing out these great truths so that those who are still captured, who were born and raised in the Jewish traditions, would begin to understand that Christ is superior, and he's not going to wait long for that to happen. We're going to see that in just a few moments. He's going to hit it right off, right significantly, to the three points that the Jewish audience would struggle the most with. The author takes painstaking time to define the preeminence of Christ. That is where one of the richest passages in all of the book of Hebrews, and one I'm going to encourage you by the end of the evening to spend time in, uh, both tonight and the rest of the week. One of the most glorious passages of the description of the character and the majesty of our Savior in Hebrews chapter 1. That is where the writer begins right hitting right to the point. We're going to study it in just a few moments or look into it briefly in just a few moments. The original audience likely was embraced or wrapped up in the confusion that the Judaizers imposed on the early church. So there's much confusion and we see even the Apostle Paul or rather the Apostle Peter struggle with this as he is sitting with a Jewish group and treating the Gentile group differently and Paul calls him out for it. We see confusion that exists even in those ministries, and we see all the way through into the Jerusalem council, we see this all the way through what the Jerusalem church had to de- then to decide regarding Peter's vision of seeing the sheet descend when he was out on the Mediterranean at Simon the Tanner's house, and he sees this sheet descend and all of this food for him to eat, and then we have Cornelius as we trace all the way through the book of Acts, and Peter goes and the church begins among the Gentiles as Peter arrives in Cornelius' house. And the change that takes place, all of that is new for the early church and specifically for the Jewish early church. So those, while those opposed to Christianity persecuted the church, the church had to wrestle with these very issues. And you could potentially imagine the challenge of this. You're a new church. 
You've just come to know Christ as your Savior, and you're enthusiastic and you're excited about coming to know Christ as Savior, but there's this question, are we under the old covenant, or did Christ change things? If we're under the old covenant, then these Jewish persecutors will back off. But if we're under a different covenant, and if we're different from them, then these Jewish persecutors will take everything that we have, including perhaps even our lives. You can understand the temptation to say, no, 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 we're the same. We've just accepted Jesus. And that seems to be the error that the Hebrews were getting into. The Hebrews seem to be those who are struggling with the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. They were stuck in the mire of the traditions of Judaism, and they were persecuted to remain there. But they could not remain there. So the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them to move beyond our next question, that uh, is another softball question for us to ask, is when was the book written? That seems like another softball question for us. Uh, when is the book written? Any ideas? What's that? After when? After the resurrection. Amen. <laughs> Before the destruction of Jerusalem. We just gave a set, about a 40-year window. Within that 40 years, and I think we can put it in that window very cleanly, it happened before the destruction of the temple before A.D. 70, the book was be written. That puts it right in line with Pauline influence over the book. It puts it right in line with being one of those early books that the church would have received. We don't have the book of Revelation being written until the mid-90s early to mid-90s, so that puts it about 20, 30 years before that would have been written. So it puts it right in here, right in the right time frame, and there's some keys to that. There's some clarity when it comes to the sacrificial system. The letter does not give us any clarity beyond what we just described that it had to have come before A.D. 70 and after the resurrection of Christ. So really, we're talking most likely between 50 and 70, about a 20-year period. The reason that we know that it was written before A.D. 70 is because there's no reference, as painstaking effort as the writer of Hebrews had made, there's no reference to the destruction of the temple and the ending of the sacrificial system. Would you not expect that out of a letter written to a group of people who were practicing the sacrificial system, the Levitical law, and the writer saying, stop doing that because Christ has fulfilled that? You would expect him to say, see, it's over, and it was destroyed, and now we're into a new age. But that hadn't happened. The destruction of Jerusalem hadn't taken place. The sacrificial system was still in effect, in Judaism, in Jerusalem, and sacrifices were still being made there. So the writer of Hebrews is speaking of a warning to come should they continue in their behavior that direction. There's going to be five of those warnings that we're going to see. There's five warnings in the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to highlight them and give you the chapter and verse here tonight. We'll do that in just a moment. Other than that, there's scant evidence of the timing of the letter with that notable exception, the temple. So the audience in 
light of this question of when the book was written, the audience of Hebrews is engaging probably in behavior that the writer is saying, stop doing that. Stop practicing Judaism. Stop practicing what the Judaizers are requiring of you. And I'm gonna, there's five warnings that should require them to do so. The first is this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which we've already read the majority of, the question is, how can you escape or how can you neglect so great a salvation? So the writer of Hebrews is saying, why would you begin to practice the sacrificial system when we've been set free from having to do so by the blood of Christ who is superior than all others? Could we possibly neglect that kind of salvation? And of course, the answer would be adamantly, no, we cannot. So there's the first warning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The second warning comes in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, where the writer of Hebrews warns the Hebrews to beware of a hardened heart and unbelief. I'm summarizing a great scope of sequence here, or scope of text here. But he is, how could we continue to do this? Do not harden your hearts as if in the rebellion, he says in verse 8 of chapter 3. Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. There's a cost for this. There's a price to be paid. It's fascinating that the writer of Hebrews would say that we're not under the law, but still issue warnings as if we were. We're going to highlight that truth. And it points to, as we go through the book, it points to the holiness of our great God. Let us not believe that just because we're not seeing some of the same kinds of judgments that Israel saw, that we are not, or that we are immune from them. Let me put it that way. That we are immune from them. In fact, we know, according to the Corinthian church, that we are not. There were those who were sick and dying in the church at Corinth because they were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. There was a price to be paid. And I believe that price to be paid is still true today for those who mockingly serve or falsely serve the Lord. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is highlighting in the first two warnings. He says, do not neglect your salvation, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Beware of a hardened heart and unbelief, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. And Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, take heed to the promises and enter into God's rest. Take heed of the promises and do something about it. Enter into the rest that God has for you, Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Hebrews 5, 11 through chapter 6, 12, strive to grow in spiritual maturity and faith. He's going to chastise them because as we have looked in times past when we were working through how to listen to a message, they had received the Word of God, but they hadn't done anything with it. They had the milk of the Word of God, and they appreciated staying right there and had not grown up to the meat of the Word of God. They should have been having solid food, but they couldn't receive solid food. And so they're chastised for that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. They are to be those who strive to grow to spiritual maturity and faith. Hebrews chapter 10 we begin to see a significant shift. We'll look into Hebrews 10, 19 in a few moments. But in Hebrews 10, 19 through the end of the chapter, we have this warning that they are going to endure trials and persecution and they should do so without shrinking back. 
don't give grounds. You're going to endure trials. Finally, the fifth one comes towards the end of the book, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Beware of the dangers of willfully sinning. All of those dangers, all of those warnings, are as pertinent for you and I as as they were for the Hebrews who received the letter. And so it's important that you and I would study them, and we will indeed study them as we go through. But as we think of when the book was written, we recognize that these five warnings were given to warn of the dangers of what would happen in A.D. 70. The writer is dealing with a physical judgment. Now we don't deal with the physical judgments. We deal with the spiritual ramifications of disobedience to those five warnings. The warnings are still there. But for the Hebrews who are listening to the original writer, that was a physical judgment that was pending. And that physical judgment that was pending was AD 70. They were those who could escape the judgment or they would fall prey to it. The choice was theirs to make, and the writer warns them that they will suffer intense consequences if they do not repent and follow the things of the Lord. There are those who say that the book was written to unbelievers, and while there were probably unbelievers in the church, it was primarily written to immature believers who were not growing. And that becomes a theme that we see throughout the book as well. So, last, last question that we ask tonight, why did the author write? Why did he write? Why is the book of Hebrews in our Bibles today? Why did he write? Well, the key statement, and this is really our outline for the book, the key statement begins with the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior. And we start in Hebrews chapter 1, and listen... <clears throat> to this text, before we get to the text, there are three elements that the Jewish mind would be captivated by. Three elements that they would hold as preeminence. Those three elements or three beings are the prophets they would hold as preeminent, the Levitical law they would hold as preeminent, and angels they would hold as preeminent. So, in essence, they're saying the messengers of God and the angels, Moses specifically as it related to the Levitical law, so what Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, which is odd given that in the Jewish tradition that they would hold these three as preeminent because when Israel rebelled, who did they rebel against? The prophets, typically, Moses, and any angelic message that came, they would reject. But nonetheless, these are the three that Jewish tradition holds as preeminent. And so notice what the writer of Hebrews does. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world." Did you catch what the writer of Hebrews did in the very first sentence? Those that you hold as preeminent in the prophets, Christ is superior to. In the very first sentence, Christ is superior to the prophets. Go down to verse 4. 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Within four verses, the writer of Hebrews has not only attacked the Jewish tradition of the prophets as being preeminent, but he's also attacked the idea of the angels as being preeminent and placed Christ as superior to both within four verses. Within four short statements. And it will not be long, and the writer is going to also attack the Levitical law and Moses as being under Christ. So it's not that he's removing those things. It's not that he's saying, don't follow those things. Don't follow the prophets or the Levitical law or the angelic realm, although there's varying degrees of our following those. He's saying that Christ is superior to those. So right off the top, the writer of Hebrews is saying, stop what you're doing, Jewish tradition, and listen to the superiority of Christ. And this is how he defines Christ. Follow along, verses 2 and following. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Did you catch how the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is described? Probably not, because in those 15 seconds or 30 seconds that it took to read that statement, you could not begin to fathom the depth of that statement. Let me slow it down just a little bit. We're going to study this in detail, a little bit more detail, not near the detail we could, but a little more detail next week, Lord willing. But listen to this. He says that in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. This is Colossians 1, John 1. Jesus is the creator of the world. Continue on. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. That is a statement that would be blasphemous to utter unless he is God. That he is the, the radiance of the glory of God. Think of Isaiah on his face in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He knew he did not belong there in the radiance of the glory of, the, of God. And Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. You know, your fingerprint is unique and distinct to you. So much so that they can convict you of a crime based upon your fingerprint. And the more we know about the human body and, the, and different elements of the human body we're discovering, such as DNA and other discoveries, 
We're discovering that there is a uniqueness to you that no one else shares. There is not, even in identical twins, a complete, exact imprint. But there is between the Son and the Father in the Trinity. What a marvelous statement of the majesty of our triune God. He is very God. The the Son is very God of very God. The exact imprints of the Father. It is by Christ that all things in the universe are held together by His Word, by His power, the Word of His power. And when He made the purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. As the author will reveal later in this statement, He is addressing the Levitical system. So within four verses, all three pillars of Judaism have been seen as subpar to Christ. In four verses. The entire Jewish system is based on these three pillars. But it takes the writer of Hebrews four verses to destroy it. And show that Christ is superior in every way. Beloved, that should enthuse us. That should excite us. That this would be what the Lord is doing. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is where I would like you to spend time this week. Meditate on those few verses, specifically verses 2 through 4. Meditate on those deeply and understand better who Christ is. We're going to spend some time here over next Sunday evening, Lord willing. But throughout the epistle, the author strikes directly at the very things that made a Hebrew a Hebrew. He strikes at those very things, those core essentials and elements. Christ is very meticulously and methodically shown to be superior to all who came before him. And his service is as high priest, is likewise superior to all that came before him. And so the role of Christ as high priest, as intercessor on our behalf, as the one who has made the sacrifice of sins for us, is superior in every way to all those who came before him. The writer of Hebrews takes the three main pillars of Judaism, the angels, the Moses or the Levitical law, and the angels and shows that what the readers now have in the Messiah is superior to all three pillars combined of Judaism. So why does it matter? Why should you and I wade into the reeds, as it were, the book of Hebrews? That all that I just described to you is the first part of the outline. The superiority of Christ goes from chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. And then chapter 10, verse 19, we're told why. Turn over to chapter 10, verse 19, the second half of the book. If the book were to be divided by outline, a simple outline, it would be this. Chapters 1 through 10 
at least 10.18, answers the question of the superiority of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and following, to the end of the book, answers why that's important. And listen to verse 19 and 20. The scripture there says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Imagine the practicing Jew. If you were to go to Israel today and you were to walk around the, in fact it's all over Israel, but specifically right around the Temple Mount area, you will notice a number of mikvahs. The mikvahs were a hole in the ground that had water and a staircase that would lead down into them. And it was a two-way staircase. You don't go both directions of both sides of the staircase. You go down one side of the staircase and you come up the other side. Down dirty, up clean. You would go into the mikvah to clean and to make ready for the sacrificial system. And you would be washed all over for that sacrifice to take place. And you did not dare walk back up the stairs you just came down because that would cause you to be dirty again and have to go back into the mikvah for the ceremonial cleaning. So instead, you would get to the bottom and you would clean and you would come up the other side, having been washed in the mikvah. Now listen again to what has been given to you because of Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that is, he's making intercession for us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why is this all important? Because the work of the ceremonial cleanliness, the sacrifice, the blood that would be shed, the role of the high priest didn't just simply disappear. It found its fulfillment in Christ. Today, you can walk into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because the blood of Christ and the washing of Christ and the ministry of the high priest of Christ. That is why you and I should study the book of Hebrews. It should give us a chill to recognize that our Savior God not only paid the price for our sins, but fulfilled the ceremonial and practical elements of the law so that you and I would not be hindered by a curtain, but would have full access to the Father through the priest who is the sacrifice, who washed you clean so that you could be there. It's easy for you and I in today's society to hold lightly the value of coming before a holy, awesome God. But through the study of the book of Hebrews, 
may we not so flippantly hold that access anymore. May we diligently study in this book what it means to come before a holy and awesome God. Henry Blackaby, I don't know if you have read his book, Experiencing God, or a study that I think we studied it here years ago as one of the, maybe the Sunday school classes or a Bible study. But Henry Blackaby wrote a book, Experiencing God, recounting how he had watched the Lord revive a church that he had come to. This church was a, a large church of 10 members when he arrived. And he began to watch the Lord bring revival to that ministry. And the church witnessed significant growth. In fact, by the time of the end of his tenure there as pastor, the church not only had grown substantially, but they had started a seminary, and they had also started 38 other churches. And Experiencing God is a book that kind of recounts the details of what God had done during that time. It's written so that other churches would see this idea of experiencing God and and turning to the things of, of the Lord in that respect. By the way, Blackaby died just a week ago, eight days ago, February 10th. Uh, He passed away. But as we look into the book of Hebrews, I'm not necessarily highlighting that book or encouraging you to run out and buy that book. What I'm saying is, may we let the book of Hebrews do far more in us than what that book did in his church. Because it's the same kind of thing. As we encounter, as we experience the goodness and the holiness and the justice of God in the book of Hebrews, let it be that which the Spirit uses in us for revival in our own hearts. Not so that we can say we started a seminary in 38 churches, but so that we could say that we stood in the presence of an awesome, holy God with full comprehension that we did not belong there except by the blood of Christ and the ministry of Christ. That is my prayer as we go through the book of Hebrews together. That as we end the very last words of the book of Hebrews, we will be struck often throughout the study and at the end of the study with what it is that Christ did for us. Let us close tonight in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads, having introduced the book of Hebrews. Lord, we haven't even gotten into the text. We haven't even dug into the first few words other than just by mentioning them. And yet, I pray that our hearts would be challenged by what we will learn in this letter. Lord, give us understanding hearts this week as we spend some time in Hebrews chapter 1. What a great text for us to spend some time digging into these first four verses to understand in greater appreciation and recognition of what it is that Christ has done for us, who Christ is, as we look to His preeminence in all things and His superiority in all things. Lord, I pray that this would immediately impact the way that we live, that we would leave here today as those in full awareness of the superiority of Christ, that we would have the bold confidence of such truth, and that that would affect the various elements of our life that it needs to impact. Lord, I pray also that you would allow us to come back through this study. We plan on 20 weeks or so in the book of Hebrews. I pray that it would be a time that is edifying, that your name is glorified in all that we do and say as we study it. 
Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for all these things, and it's in Christ's name that we do pray them. Amen.